Hey, test, test, quantum computing, test, test. Quantum computer running. Bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone, and welcome to the Bits and Pretzels podcast. I'm Britta Vetteling, your Bits and Pretzels podcast host, and this week's guest is pushing the limits in deep tech, one of the booming areas in the European startup ecosystem right now. His name is Jan Götz, and he is the founder and CEO of the German-Finnish startup IQM, one of the most ambitious players in the quantum computer space. So far, IQM has received 71 million euros in funding. And with that money, he is going eye to eye with some of the most important companies in tech, including Google and IBM, in the fight for quantum supremacy. In this show, Jan is going to share how he has built a company around a complex technology such as quantum computers and what impact the next generation of supercomputers is about to have on the innovation ecosystem. If this only partly becomes true, then it will really uh, revolutionize uh, society in many, many aspects. So it's still a big promise, but um, I, I think we have pretty good chances to see the impacts on society. Jan Götz, thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here today. At the end of last year, you obviously had a great year. And at the end of last year, you have received 39 million euros in your Series A from investors such as deep tech investor MIG funds, the Finnish Tazy, Vito Ventures, We Squared Ventures and Tencent. And that means, if I count correctly, that you have received 71 million euros in total, can you share some insights about uh, that round? And specifically, since these are like not usual times, since we all have to deal with a pandemic here in, in the entrepreneurial world, how did the pandemic influence that process? Well, first of all, of course, we are super happy um, about all of the investors. And I think usually it's it's not easy to um, get an investment round like this together and, and probably Corona didn't help, even though actually for a deep tech startup like us, I must say Corona didn't make things as bad as we initially uh, initially anticipated. Um, but so this funding round, um, I think what we have seen is two things. One is that um, people got a little bit careful with how they spend the money and in, in how they select um, the, the companies. Um, but on the other hand, also, we have seen that technology and in particular deep tech um, is still pretty um, hot stuff and, and people really want to invest in this. And, and one of the reasons for this is actually that um, people want to keep some kind of tech sovereignty. And this became even more apparent during the corona when, when people realized, hey, we are not even able to produce our own face masks anymore and other things. Right. right? So they really saw we need the technology here. We need to have the access to the technology. And this also helped us. So I think it had good and, and bad sides, the, the pandemic for, for this funding round. Interesting. And what you what you mean by sovereignty is that you actually see quantum computing, which is a completely new technology that bears great promises to innovation, is one of the key technologies that moves uh, so society forward. 
at least it has the potential. I, I wouldn't say that at the moment already it's it's moving society forward a lot because it, the the machines or the computers that we have at the moment um, they can still be considered as research uh, machines. But of course there is this right. huge yeah. potential and the huge promise. And if this only partly becomes true, then it will realize uh, really uh, revolutionize uh, society in many many aspects. So it's still a big promise, but um, I, I think we have pretty good chances to see the impacts on society. But you also sold your first quantum computer for 20 million euro. How did that go then? Yeah, I think this goes pretty much along the lines that, that I've been telling so far. So it starts with this argument that... Um, countries uh, want to keep tech sovereignty. So in, in this case, it was Finland, uh, where we are headquartered. And the Finnish government announced um, a huge quantum program. And as part of this, they announced that they will buy a quantum computer, which for us, of course, is very important because so far quantum was mainly um, funded through research grants for, for university professors. And this was the, the first real um, sales case in, in Europe where there was a public tender. So a Euro European-wide tender where, where companies can place their bids. Um, and this has happened. So the budget was there, the 20 million, and there was actually a real competition, which for us also I think is very, very good that there is a market and there are competitors. Um, and in the end, uh, we won, which of course for us is, is great and, and we are super happy. And now we are uh, have the first sales case um, secured, um, 20 million euros for a quantum computer in Finland. This still will be such a, a research-style computer, so it, it will not be right. a computer where any, let's say, company solves business problems with us. So. What's the Finnish government doing with this quantum computer then right now? Well, what they're doing, I think they're using it for, for the purposes which are very important at the moment. And the first one actually is education, because in, in quantum, we are in the situation where we have way too few talents, so way too few quantum physicists out there in the world who know how to build such machines. So from a strategic angle, it is very important to have direct access to machines like this in order to teach the next generation on how to build even better computers. So this is the one of the main purposes. And the other one then is research to so really answer some of the fundamental research questions in, in physics or, or chemistry that we still have. So you mentioned that you now become a real company, um, not a scientific research program anymore. How was that transition for, for your team? Um, it was interesting because I myself, I am a scientist by training and maybe also by heart. No, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when yeah. we started, um, we were all kind of scientists. So I think the first 20, 30 people in the company, they almost all have a PhD in, in physics or electrical engineering or something similar. And But then as we saw, okay, actually there is a chance for real business, we started hiring um, non-technical people. So for example, uh, a head of business development. Uh, meanwhile, we have a head of marketing. We have, of course, people from finance. So it's now so that we have a real management team, so to say, which, which for me was interesting to see because it's the first time actually in my whole life that I'm working with non-scientists. For, for me, I think I learned a lot. <laughs> I think I learned more than anyone else in How is that going for you so far? I think it's going very well because, I mean, what, what 
for me, I don't have a problem saying that, okay, I know nothing. You have to tell me everything. Um, and, and if, if you do this, um, I think people, they, if you trust the right people, of course, um, um, they see a lot the, the value in, in working in, in such a company because they, they can bring in their own ideas. And if these are good ideas, people listen to them. And, and I think in terms of empowerment and letting people grow, actually, this is a great chance when, when, uh, the, the management that has been there so far comes purely, uh, from a technical background. So this right. means that, okay, for everyone else who comes in, they really are able to move the needle. Yeah. So, so you know, let, let's get a little deeper into the technology that you are developing and that, you know, bears all these promises. Uh, how would you explain the technology, let's say, to a 10-years-old kid or to your mom? 10-year-old kid or my mom. So does this mean my mom is on the level of a 10-year-old kid? No, I didn't um, say that. <laughs> I did <talking>. say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, um, yeah. So I'm uh, actually it's very important also for me personally to kind of make sure that people get a good understanding of what quantum computers are without understanding all the technology details because this is impossible. And um, I think um, to demystify it a little bit, it's always good to just think of it as a as a normal computer. Um, so think about the laptop computer, maybe that you have in front of you to, to listen to this podcast. Um, and this computer has some hardware components and some software running on it. And this is all the same for a quantum computer. At the moment, they're still a little bit bigger. So they are of the size of a small room or so, and they make some noise. Um, but other than that, it's, it's pretty much the same. And the secret is that actually the, the processing unit, so where the information is being processed, this doesn't work according to classical, uh, the, the laws of classical physics, but they, these processors, they behave um, to the laws of quantum mechanics. And in, in the quantum world, things are a little bit different. And this is the only thing basically that one has to believe here is that, okay, in the quantum world, there are possibilities to take shortcuts, mm -hmm. mathematical shortcuts. And these shortcuts, they can be so strong that actually you can make some calculations happening in seconds, which otherwise would take thousands of years. And, and this is kind of the, um, the, the secret which is in there. And of course, if you, if you really want to understand this, you need to understand a little bit of physics and, and math and, right. and about uh, these phenomena. But it's, it's not so far away from a normal computer, which just brings answers really, really fast. You mentioned that there's a lot of mystique around it, that, that you want to demystify the technology. Why do you think that's necessary? Because the technology, if we want to use it, it has to become normal for every one of us, like a mobile phone, right? If, if we have to trust the technology, this is also something that, that we have to learn that right. if, if you really people that, that people want to use it and maybe for their business, they have to trust it. And, and trust means they, they understand at least the, the concepts um, of it and they don't think it's some kind of black magic or so. Um, and then also, um, I think it, it, makes sense if we want to have more and more people working in this field also from who are not coming from from the physics side let's say we need people um, computer scientists um, and and we want them to join our company so they need to have a feeling that hey this is something i can actually learn and i can start working for these guys without going through a complete physics degree again and and this is what we are doing in iqm we are teaching our software engineers on how quantum computers work but it only works if they somehow have a little bit of trust in that the technology is no black magic, but something real they can learn. 
Talk about like some of the applications of, of a quantum computer that probably most excites you uh, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, there, there are many um, applications that, that are exciting for people, and it depends a little bit on who you are, um, what, what excites you. Um, for me, the, the Can we solve the pandemic with quantum computers? You cannot solve the pandemic. Um, the, uh, what, what quantum computers um, can do, um, at least there are known algorithms for it, is to, for example, um, use some kind of machine learning um, tools to find um, better uh, medicine. So usually in, in, in the drug discovery, um, there is a lot of trial and error going on and um, you, you're looking for certain patterns. And this is something where quantum computers can help. Um, right. And um, they can help, for example, modeling how a virus spreads in, in the society. So just take a mathematical model um, how the virus is going to distribute um, and, and these kind of things. But they're not going to cure us from any kind of pandemic. But it, it certainly bears some, you know, promises in terms of dealing with huge amount of data, you know, finding like some patterns in this huge amount of, of, of data. Yeah, actually, a huge amount of data, <laughs> then I'm always coming a little bit careful because one of the tricky tasks at the moment is to put data into a quantum computer. So they are good at pattern recognition, but they're not so good for big data applications, so to say. So they're really good in processing um, small and complicated problems, but they're not very good in handling huge amount of data. And, and how people envision this is actually, they see quantum computers as an accelerator, similar to in AI, where you have a graphical um, processing unit, a GPU, taking over some of the tasks um, of a larger computer. And, and this is the way you also should think about a quantum computer. It's an accelerator, which you attach onto a big supercomputer. And the, let's say the massive amount of data is being processed by the supercomputer, but the very, very tricky and hard tasks, these are being outsourced to the quantum computer. Right. When you think about the first time that you got in touch with quantum computers, did you ever think about, you know, starting a company around this technology or what was your personal approach? Well, I I got uh, um, exposed to this technology during my uh, my master degree and, and then also PhD, um, which I did in Munich. But at this point, actually, we were not focusing so much on the computing aspects, but more on the physics and science behind it, um, which is also very fascinating. And you can study physics, which you're otherwise not able to study. Um, this is what people call quantum simulations. Um, but then I, I came to Helsinki and, and here in, in the group here, the focus was much more on this computing aspect. And we really thought about, okay, how can you build a machine and a computer that works um, mm -hmm. out of it? Um, and, and I got more and more fascinated by this. Also from this entrepreneurial point of view, um, because there were things I, I never did before, like filing a patent and, and these kind of things, which are not so on vogue in the, in the German um, scientific community. Um, here, we just did them. So we did a lot of patenting work, a lot actually also on outreach on, on media and other platforms. So already in this in this research group, actually, it was working a little bit like a startup, let's say. And then the move to the real startup world was not so big anymore. 
So how is that starting a company in that area and then also finding investors that would invest in this endeavor within, you know, quite honestly, uncertain outcome in terms of time frame? As you mentioned, it's pretty unclear when and how we can, you know, apply these technologies. So, so, so give us some insights of how you experienced that. So for me, it became, in a sense, a little bit as a surprise because I was not planning it and, and just the opportunity opened up and then we said we did it. Um, and being a scientist, actually, it felt pretty normal because during your PhD or your postdoc career, this is what you do all the time. You try to solve problems where you don't even know if, if there is a solution in the end. And usually um, the, the timescales are very uncertain. So it, it didn't felt for me very, let's say, um, uncertain or insecure or so, but we just decided to do it. Mm. Um, but of course, also back then, I didn't realize how big this would be at, at some point. And we just thought, okay, let's go out. We will pitch to some investors. Maybe they give us money, maybe not. Um, and then we see. And... I don't know. I, for a long time, actually, I didn't realize that this can actually grow really big and that many people in the background are really strongly supporting this on a very high level. Um, and maybe in, in the beginning, this was a little bit naive, but maybe this was good also for me because then I just I, I could really with a very plain view on the things um, go ahead and, and plan our, um, our story. I think a question, you know, for many entrepreneurs that go into these deep tech areas, which I find, as you know, fascinating, right? I mean, they're like people who work in in the space industry, in, in biotech, uh, like you in quantum, and they all have to find like a story to sell to to their investors, uh, you know, in terms of what time frame they're looking at, what their really their roadmap is towards, you know, a certain profitability, because every investor wants to see a return at some point. You know, having grown up in this scientific community, what have you learned about running a startup and also dealing with the commercial side of things, frankly? Well, when we started and, and the first plans we presented to our investors, um, I think the commercial side was was pretty weak. Um, and I don't even know when the first revenue was in our plans. Um, certainly not yet already now um, and at this order of magnitude in particular. Um, and I think this is then a little bit also the art and, and the skill set um, of the investors um, kind of finding these raw diamonds, which, which are there, which need a little bit of help to, to start shining. And, um, and I think in our in situation, um, this um, worked out really well because there were a few investors who said, okay, the team is really great. The technology is really great. Um, and on the commercials, of course, we, we still have to, to work on them, but this is something they can learn. Um, and it's, it's, it, I think it's, it's easier to learn how a business runs than it's to learn how to build a quantum computer. At least for me, it makes this impression. Um, so I think it's very important that you have a very solid technology and that you have a very strong team. Mm -hmm. And then you need to find the right supporters who see actually the value behind all of this and how everything might go together. Um, and you don't need to have this commercial story already in the very beginning, but you right. need to be able to adapt. Yeah. And this kind of openness to adaption and to change, I think this is also something the investors are looking for. If, if they see you and you're totally stubborn and you say everything they tell you is stupid, then probably they will not invest. But if you're open to learn and to change your plans, I think they will go for it. I mean, some people would say that scientists are not the best business people, but, you know, that's a different story. That's probably not right for, for everybody. But um, yeah. 
but this is what I'm saying. I'm not doing the, let's say, the business now, right? We have now professional people on board who, who help us uh, okay. with this. And the scientists do the science. Of course, I do a lot of, let's say, selling and I, I talk to people. But the real business, uh, which is going on in, in the background, um, of course, there, there are now um, much better people who help us with this. Right. And you're pretty good at it, I have to say, on, on stage and, you know, ex explaining the technology, you know, giving interviews. But, you know, that's a different story. I wanted to come back to something that you you mentioned earlier, uh, that you've, you have to find your own approach towards that technology. There are like several research groups all over the world. They're also big companies uh, running projects in the area of quantum computing all over the world. What makes your approach or your team or your technology special and, and what, you know, successful moving forward? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And of course, for this, you really need a good answer if you want to at least have a substantial amount of money, um, because no one will give you right. the money just to copy um, what, what any other big corporate um, does. Yeah. And also like, you know, the team, right? I mean, you mentioned that you, you know, you are fascinated with the technology, but if you are a scientist in this very specific area and you're a smart person, you want to go where the most, you know, other smart persons are. So, you know, that makes it important to talk about your special approach, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Creating follow us um, I think this yeah. is what you mean and, and yeah. yeah so so from a technology point of view actually for I mean computers are pretty complex topic um, but actually what we have in, in IQM is a very unique story um, where we have um, advantages at um, both ends of the spectrum and with spectrum here I mean spectrum from hardware to applications so at the lowest le hardware level and this is something we have developed here over decades in Finland is we have um, developed technology to speed up the processors to make them run faster which is very important um, not only because if they run faster you get the result faster but actually in quantum one of the limiting factors is the short lifetime of the information so usually it decays within less than a millisecond or so. So this means you really have to process the information very, very fast if, if you want to avoid errors. And then uh, we combine this actually, and, and this is what we call co-design, we combine this processor hardware knowledge with a, a very clever way of mapping a real-world problem onto a processor architecture that actually runs on it. Um, and, and this is extremely important because at the moment we are limited by the hardware size. So the quantum processors at the moment are not yet powerful enough. Um, so we, you need to really use them in the most efficient way. You don't want to have any kind of hardware overhead. Um, and, and in this co-design spirit, by coming from both ends, from the hardware and from the application side, and then mapping it in a perfect way together, um, we can really have a hardware efficient implementation um, of the problems. And with this sense, um, we, we can reach um, a, a real world application faster than, than anyone out there um, in, from our competitors. And if you wanted to explain that process to, to anybody who is not in the <laughs> technology, so, so what does it mean? What does it mean? It means like you, um, let's say um, you, you, have a, you have a problem um, and you know there is a solution um, for it. Um, and instead of only working from one side, trying of fitting the problem into the solution, you're also working from the solution side and kind of showing the solution to the problem. So it's really you bring both ends together and make them meet and match in the middle. Um, so it's, it's coming from both sides. And basically, this means you run twice as fast, so to say. 
Interesting. So obviously, uh, I, I mentioned that many uh, stakeholders in the industry are working on quantum uh, computing, including the big tech companies, right? I mean, a couple of months ago, Google uh, stated that it reached uh, something it called quantum supremacy. Uh, other companies joined uh, the race. And since you also have, you know, Tencent as one of the big Chinese IT companies uh, as part of your investors, uh, this is really a game that, you know, also the tech titans uh, are fighting. What, what does it mean for for quantum computing and, you know, the chances for, for startups in, in this regard? Is there any way that startups can, you know, beat the big tech companies? Um, yes, I think there is. And actually now we are, we are coming back also a little bit to the beginning when we were talking about tech sovereignty, um, because there is this strategic um, thinking behind. And here we have to also com uh, consider a little bit um, the um, global situation where all the tech giants that you mentioned, they're located either in the US or in China. Um, and in right. Europe, as we know, there are um, unfortunately not so many left. Um, so this means actually if we want to have a tech sovereignty and the solution from Europe, it means it has to be done by the startups together, maybe with academ help from academia. Um, and then maybe um, also strong players from industry can, can come to support, maybe not on the quantum level, but on a infrastructure level, so to say. So, for example, um, you could put one of our quantum computers into a cloud system from whatever, Telecom, Atos, or, or any other out there. Um, and I think in this kind of triangle, um, startups, industry, and academia, um, we can really have a competitive solution from Europe. Do you think Europe is missing another important field of innovation, uh, which is specifically interesting because of its geopolitical significance uh, with quantum computing? Yeah, I think what we are missing in Europe a little bit is the way and the spirit to create unicorns or something that goes even beyond, which can become a, another tech giant and, and in this way then protect future startups and, and entrepreneurs. Um, and I think this is something that we have to analyze and think about how can we actually in Europe create a situation where these things happen um, and where people don't go maybe to the Silicon Valley or also to Asia um, to um, become unicorns and to become really, really big. Um, and there are, of course, many problems that needs to be solved. It's not like a one thing and, and then we go there. But I think it, if everyone in the field works a little bit towards it, um, there, there will be a time where, again, we have the, the big tech companies in Europe. So, so what happens if such a major technological leap ends up in the hands of just, you know, a few big tech companies? I don't know if per se something bad or so happens. It's more like, We, we actually, and now again, speaking with my European hat on, um, what we do is actually we um, take a lot of the efforts in, in education and developing the technologies. So actually also in quantum computing, a lot of the early technology has been developed in Europe and, and we invest heavily in this. But then the value creation at some point, it doesn't happen here anymore, but it happens elsewhere. And of course, from a business perspective, also for the whole of Europe, um, this is not very attractive, but it would be good if, if in the end, And the value creation um, from these decades of funding that we put into these basic technologies, it then also happens here. Um, and, and in this way, we can use it to, again, finance maybe the next generation of, of new technology. 
Something that I talked to with Daniel Metzler, the CEO of ESA Aerospace, which is a big space company here in Munich, mm -hmm. was the responsibility of the government in, you know, becoming an anchor customer for these new and deep tech uh, startups, uh, you know, in, in regards to what NASA kind of did, you know, kickstarting uh, space, Elon Musk's SpaceX, obviously, with the first, you know, giving them the first big contracts. Is this something that you find the government should do as well? Exactly. And I think this is exactly what has happened here in Finland with this deal that we have been talking about. There, yeah. the government gave the money um, to a research organization called VTT, which is like the, the Finnish Fraunhofer. And then they bought from us, um, which is like this SpaceX model getting money from, from NASA or so. Um, and I think we, we have also now the chance in Germany, actually, in, in Germany, we are in the situation where the government has announced a 2 billion euro package for quantum. And now it's up to the politicians to decide how they want to use it. But I think if they really want to support startups and entrepreneurs, it would be very clever actually to use it in a similar way and say, hey, instead of funding again many, many research organizations, we, we use the money or at least part of the money, not the whole 2 billion, um, but at least part of the money to buy a machine from um, from startups and it's, it's not only us who are able to um, to deliver so it really if there if there is a tendering process and a clear competition I think this really helps the European startup scene um, in, in growing and in finding very um, first customers how can we make sure that and I, this kind of debate or this discussion kind of reminds me you know to you know it's, it's similar to the discussion that we we had in in Germany and in Europe around AI and cloud computing and you know all the approaches you know taken by the government so far like kind of you know debatable <laughs> to say the least so how can we make sure that we are not having uh, this conversation about quantum computing um, how can we make sure I mean There are several aspects um, in, in the whole thing. One is, of course, there is um, a, a huge potential. On the other hand, we are still quite early um, in the way there. So it's also a lot of expectation management, which needs to be done right. Um, and I think in, in this way, again, this is something where we can use the, the European strengths in maybe being a little bit more realistic um, than people are in other places um, of the world um, and say, okay, look, this is where we are. This is the speed of the development at the moment. And then you can actually quite easily extrapolate. And at least on European level, this is happening. So in, in September, Ursula von der Leyen was in, in her State of the Union also publishing um, the roadmap for um, supercomputing, the European supercomputing roadmap. And there they clearly say, okay, we put small quantum accelerators into the big European computing centers. Um, and in this way, we strengthen the infrastructure, we strengthen the startups, um, but not yet promising that these machines will solve any kind of um, super important business problems, because this is not where we are next year yet. And, and I think being realistic, having the right side of expectation management, but then also being able to deliver. And, and then this, of course, goes to startups like us, like being able to deliver a machine that works um, in a certain triumph frame. And then hopefully we will not um, end up in, in similar discussions that we have maybe with, with AI at the moment. What's the time frame there? How long do we still have to wait until we can use these computers? I mean, we can use them. That's the thing. And and we can use them for scientific right. computing. And and. 
I mean, of course, there are many more use cases that people would like them to, but actually also the scientific computing market, it's not a super small market. I mean, hundreds of millions are, are being paid for this um, globally. Um, and um, in, in this sense, um, I think this would be a natural way to go, that you start there um, and then you start growing um, the power. And in, in, in this way, um, at some point, of course, you will reach the threshold of solving the first business models, but it's really hard to say, will it be three years, five years, seven years? But I guess it will be somewhere in this time span. Interesting. And one thing people always talk about uh, when they talk about quantum computing is obviously uh, that this technology will probably break uh, security or encryption. Do you see any dangers there? No. Um, this is. But I was earlier saying that it, different people are motivated by different promises of quantum computing. Um, so I am an really motivated to build quantum computers to do um, things that turn this world into a better place, like, for example, finding better drugs or uh, making some um, other processes or, or traffic flow more efficient or so. But then, of course, there are applications which are maybe going into the dual use or into the security aspect. Um, and <laughs> A little bit, let's say, the good news is that these are still very far away. Um, so um, in, in terms of how big quantum processors you need for those, um, they probably come at the very end. Um, and and there, um, if you do it clever, you have, as a, as a company, for example, you have installed already beforehand so-called quantum-safe um, encryption um, systems. And, and then also... What's the time frame there? Like 50 years, 10 years? Well, ten, ten plus, I would say. Yeah, it's hard to say what's what's happening in ten plus years, but I would would I don't think they come sooner than 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 ten years. These these machines that can really saw, uh, crack these RSA codes. Now we want to know a little more about you. So we are moving over to our Bavarian beer garden break, uh, you know, to give people, even in these pandemic times, a little taste of the Bavarian uh, lifestyle. Since we are a Bavarian, obviously, a conference, we want to at least transfer a little bit of this atmosphere into our podcast uh, here. So, Jan, what do we drink to? What do we drink to? Um, well... I usually just drink to my friends and enjoy time with them. Usually I don't drink alone. <laughs> so um, I'm sitting here alone. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if this answers your question. Or... Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. If you could have a beer at Oktoberfest with any person, uh, dead or alive, who would that be? With any person, um, Albert Einstein. Because he is obviously the big guy in quantum physics, and well, because because I want to see if he is as crazy as I think he is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you obviously spend half of your time in in Helsinki, uh, and this is where we met at Slash last year. Uh, how did you end up there in the first place? So my PhD was over in Munich, and I had to do something. Um, and I decided to pursue uh, a professor career. And then I had um, different offers for a postdoc. So this is usually how it starts. You do a two-year postdoc or so. Um, and um, actually, I was I was in a job interview in Barcelona. Hmm. Um, and then I got a phone call um, from a professor here in Helsinki, who is now one of the co-founders, and said, hey, I, I heard that you're available. Um, and don't you want to come over to Helsinki? And I told him, well, I already have a few other offers. But 
then he said, never mind, just take the next flight to Helsinki. <laughs> I thought, okay, I've never been there, why not? And I really took the next flight to Helsinki without planning and I came here and then somehow I stayed because it was such a great opportunity in, in his team um, and, and also the city and everything. So I, I don't um, regret any single uh, moment being here. How many people do do work in your company right now? Now it's about 80 people. 80. Wow. Eight zero, yeah, and 20, wow. 20 are in Munich and, and both places growing still. Interesting. So so when you think about, you know, your daily work as an entrepreneur in, in your company uh, and, you know, also in your role as a scientist, uh, what's like the hardest challenge you think uh, to tackle in, in quantum computing? The hardest challenge in tackling quantum computing? Well, I think really the hardest challenge is being able to create a business that works without overselling and delivering the technology. And I think that's the, the hardest challenge because you need the money, you need to make promises, um, but then also you, you have to deliver on the tech side. And I think aligning these promises and the R&D roadmap, um, I think this is the hardest challenge. What, what's your perspective and what's you know your 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 roadmap in terms of when you want to deliver something so like you know i don't know like talking about the next milestones you know the next i don't know quantum computer you want to sell or you know certain scientific milestones that you wanted to achieve yeah so actually this now works pretty nicely with this deal we have here in Finland, which is a, uh, comes in three stages. And so it's a modular computer, so to say, which gets upgrades. Um, and each year there will be an upgrade for the next three years. Um, and, and in each year, the processor um, um, size is, is increasing. And I think this will go on in the background and hopefully we will sell one or two or three more um, of such systems um, until we reach um, a situation that we call quantum advantage and quantum advantage is exactly the point where you can use a quantum computer um, to do business um, and so we will basically keep upgrading our systems and selling our systems until at some point we have uh, a computer that reaches this quantum advantage. And then I guess the business model will change quite uh, dramatically um, from, from selling these research style systems um, towards um, selling computers or computing time that solve business problems. When, when do you think you can reach this quantum advantage? Well, this is what I was referring to earlier. I, I guess somewhere between three, five, seven years, somewhere in this in this range, this is what we anticipate. But it's yeah, it's hard to predict the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. I think you know the whole area of deep tech kind of sees you know a lot of attention uh, in the industry right now. And I, I like from my perspective at least, I think it's 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 great that so many entrepreneurs go into this into this area and tackling like really the hard stuff uh, and the hard uh, questions. When you look into you know other companies, the other areas of of this deep tech world, what kind of technology or entrepreneurs or ideas fascinate you and you know and and where do you think you know people need to look more you know in in the deep tech world what what do you think does it have for all of us 
Well, I'm, but maybe this is also due to my background, I am really fascinated by all the kind of hardware ideas which are out there. Um, so I, I spend my PhD in a lab with a soldering iron and this kind of stuff. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I really like, for example, I like all kinds of robotics and, and these things. And, and I think yeah. we will see much more of this also in interaction with, with human life. Um, and mm -hmm. actually, I'm quite curious how people are taking it. Um, do they at some point really accept them as a, let's say, human helper um, or not? Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by such kind of very cool hardware um, ideas, things that move, things that fly, all this kind of stuff. Cool. And you have been living in, in Finland for, for a while now, and obviously the Nordics are, you know, very much in the focus of, of the innovation and setup ecosystem uh, as well. Can you share some insights for our listeners uh, from, from other parts of the world, you know, what you find fascinating about the setup ecosystem uh, of the Nordics? Well, I think... Here, especially in, in Finland, um, but also in other places I've been um, in, in the Nordics, it's really this kind of very pragmatic thinking, uh, very flat hierarchies, not only in companies, but all over the place. Um, and and um, then in a, a very supportive um, environment. Um, and, and I think this all together goes, goes very well. Um, so people open you the doors, whatever um, is behind, um, to very high level politicians, to decision makers. Um, and I think this really works well. Of course, it, in a sense, it works also because the society is a little bit smaller than, for example, in Germany. Um, so basically everyone lives next door, so to say. Um, and, and this is this is very easy. Um, but this together then with this optimism and this very good mood and, and happiness of people, um, which I think is necessary in the startup world because otherwise it can be frustrating. Yeah, and they also have these great bars in Helsinki where you can spend a lot of time drinking and discussing business models as far as I remember from the last time that I've spent there. So also like a great, uh, great places Uh, to to hang and and chill and discuss stuff, uh, that's that's for sure. Yes, no, they all close at nine, but it will be better I know. at some point. <laughs> Coming to the next part of our podcast, which is our toolbox, where our guests share their top three tools that every founder needs to know. What what are your three tools? Number one. Well, my first tool is my team. Uh, I think which I use a lot. Um, so usually I say I don't do any of the work, but I'm just sitting in, for example, podcasts and other events and, and talk about the great stuff that our team does. And I think this is the, the most important thing that you have a team that you can trust, a team that delivers and a team that has crazy ideas to go forward. Um, so I think this is um, very important. Number two. My second tool would be being able to give away. Um, I think that's that's very important. It's not easy. Also for me, it was not easy in the beginning because you everything is so important to you and it's your baby, uh, but you have to be able to, to let go. Um, and and let other people um, decide and, and do things um, and, and maybe listen, of course, to their advice, but in the end, trust that, that they do the right things. Number three. Finally, the fun. I think this is something that, um, we, especially in a very risky business as we are with quantum computing, we, we have no guarantee that it works. We have no guarantee that the technology works. We have no guarantee that the business works. So the only thing we can promise also our people is that we have fun. Um, and, and this is what we try a lot in, in our company. And I think on the on the way through life, um, this is also usually something I, I try to keep as kind of the fun doing work, but also after after work and yeah, in, in private. 
coming to our either or game um, right now. And this is uh, how it works. I give you two words and you have to choose one uh, and explain real quick why you've made that choice, which is obviously interesting because, uh, you know, quantum computing obviously, obviously gives you a non-binary state. But, you know, we <laughs> yeah, have to try. Yeah, proposition of both. <laughs> <laughs> which we have to try at least for, for this game to, to think differently. So the first one is bits or pretzels? Um, the bits for sure. Well, the first reason is I don't like pretzels, <laughs> uh, especially the, the salty ones. Um, but then, of course, the bits, I, I love the tech and, and especially the deep tech. So this is a clear bits thing. Nerd or extrovert? Um, I uh, Actually, I like a lot the nerds um, because usually they are the ones that do the real stuff. Um, where at least with some of the extroverts, you don't know if they're just selling things or if it's real. <laughs> so um, I go for the nerds. <laughs> they are very um, honest, usually. Risk or safety? Um, I take the risk, even though I'm a safety person. But I think what usually in, in my daily job, I, I take the risk. Um, and, and this is something you have to do as an entrepreneur. Of course, you have to a little bit check always what, what are the, the pros and cons. Um, but if you don't take risk, I think um, no startup um, will fly. Stability or change? Change. Um, this is for me since day one, we are only in change mode. Um, I think our business model, our job description, everything is changing constantly. And I think it only works if you, from your mindset, um, are very open to a constant change. Numbers or ideas? Ideas. Um, even though I'm a physicist, um, actually, I'm not a big number man um, or like I um, I never tried to prove anything mathematically or so I I, I can try to prove by sketching <laughs> so having an idea putting on paper <laughs> and then this is for me a proof that it works uh, work or fun well okay as I said I try to combine both of them so maybe this is the superposition thing um, no but honestly I'm, I'm working a lot um, I think this this is part of the job description um, so so work has very high priority but I always come back to the to the fun because as I said the only thing that that we can promise in the end is fun so maybe I go for the fun <laughs> lead or follow um, lead um, lead for me i'm i'm not a maybe typical leader um, in a way that i have very strong opinions and everyone has to follow them but i lead a lot through listening um, and these kind of things but I, I nevertheless think that you need some kind of leadership culture um, and and the leadership culture in, in iqm is like this that we listen a lot to people we try actually often to make consensus decisions but in the end sometimes you just require also someone who makes the call and and and, and goes ahead Tradition or transition? I like tradition um, a lot, even though I was voting for the change. Um, so maybe because I voted for the change, I go here for the tradition. Um, because actually, I sometimes I like to just remember and reflect how people did it back um, in the during the years or, or so, and um, maybe also very long time ago, um, and just think about what were the values back then. Um, so I'm, in a sense, I'm a quite traditional person. Jan Götz, thank you so much for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast today. Thank you. All right, that was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and subscribe to our podcast to never miss a new episode again. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple or wherever you're listening. See you next week. Bye.